mysterious little rhino. Chakaka! Scott Show. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with one Eric Alderman. Eric is a serial entrepreneur. He's a former Everson Museum trustee. He's a former SU Whitman professor, where he actually was one of the, the was he the first? He might have been the first entrepreneur professor at SU. Uh, he's was the owner of the late Stoop Kitchen, which is now the Scratch Bakehouse, or as Eric would put it, the Scratch Bakehouse is the stepchild or reincarnation of the Stoop Kitchen. Um, anyway, we had a really interesting discussion across a wide variety of topics about everything from restaurants to SU to education. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But anyway, it was a really good conversation. I quite enjoyed it, and I hope you do as well. Here we go. You know, it's like the most impressive restaurant in Syracuse is uh, Possibilities, but it's not even close to being the best. Right. But it is by far the most impressive hmm. restaurant, what, what they've done with it uh, since the day it opened, which was friendly. You do got to be a little closer than that, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm we, sorry. We are live now. Oh, we are? Yeah. And, okay. and don't grab this. If you can help it, grab sure. it like uh, yep, yep. I'm this, good. this arm will move. I'm good. Well, it'll move wherever you want, but... Uh, yeah, so uh, glad we got that working after some technical difficulties. Thank you for being here, Eric. I You're welcome. Um, you were just talking about Prime Best. I'm a, I quite enjoy a nice steak, so I got to check out Prime, huh? You definitely, yeah. Uh, the owner's a, a great operator, and uh, it's a very friendly place, and the food is uh, first rate in terms of going to a steakhouse. Gotcha. All the things you'd expect to be good at a steakhouse are really good. Gotcha. I'm not a. I don't go out to eat a ton. I do like to cook. Um, you're good. Don't worry about it. Uh, I do like to cook, so I don't go out to eat too often. Um, fiance uh, and I just got a gift card to Scotch and Sirloin. Sure. Is that any good? It's a Syracuse uh, tradition. Uh, uh, it just not what face... I asked. No, I'm gonna. Oh. Gi- I'm gonna give you an answer. <laughs> uh, they, they're. Uh, They've had a, uh, a change in menu in the last few years. Uh, they had a very, very fine chef whose name was Jean, and he just recently died a couple weeks ago. Mm. Um, but it's a great place to go before or after uh, an event. They have a great uh, bar uh, okay. with a circular fire pit indoors. and it's a, it's a Syracuse institution, and they have a great uh, steak teriyaki. Steak teriyaki. Yeah, and a wonderful salad bar with um, pumpernickel bread. Ooh, sounds so, tasty. Um, it's it's a standby for a lot of people. Okay. Well, we're going to have Enjoy to check it, it out in the coming, yeah. coming weeks. It's over by Shopping Town, right? It's in Shopping Town. It is in Shopping Town. Well, I didn't know there was anything. left of Shopping Town. I was going to say, I didn't know there was anything uh, other than ghosts in Shopping Town. <laughs> well, the theater's there for a little bit while, a little bit of while longer, I think. Okay. And maybe some hair salons and nail places and some things like that, but that's about it. Yeah, that place is... It's funny, my mom grew up in... Uh, she went to FM, and... My kids went to FM. Oh, yeah? No kidding. Partially, yeah. I went to JD. JD, okay. So right around the corner. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's funny. She has memories of Shavingtown being entirely different. Oh, sure. No, it was the place. And it had a great opportunity to be the place in the east side of town if they had done something earlier on uh, while uh, Destiny, previously Carousel Center, right. was being developed. Uh, but, you know, the Carousel Destiny dominates the retail market in Syracuse. For sure. Yeah. It's, uh... And the national food market in Syracuse. What do you mean? National uh, casual dining. Oh, as far as the restaurants I have in there. Okay. Yeah. Really? People go to the mall that much for dinner? Like, I don't know. Who wants to go to a mall for dinner? Well... People? I don't know. <laughs> Other than me. Um, you know, a place like, um, uh, you know, some of the places that are there uh, don't stay open if they're not doing 12, 14, 16 million dollars a year in business. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the answer is yes. People go there. They flock there. Because they have to be good, I'm guessing. Um, them, right? They have to be who they are. People like them for who they are. Uh, so the menus are accessible. People trust it. Um, it's it's uh, some of the food is very good, some of it is uh, fairly ordinary, but you know a lot of people in most communities uh, find it easy to trust and go to national chains because they know what they're getting. It's comfort, familiarity, yeah. and a lot of the you know some of the national chain uh, Italian places uh, um, or steak places. The prices are very good, mm -hmm. and it's great for people who don't have unlimited amounts of money to spend to go out to dinner. Yeah. So they're, they're viable options, along with the mom-and-pop uh, fine dining or casual dining uh, or diners that yeah. appear in cities like Syracuse. I would so much rather go to a local place than a chain. Like, just to not only support the area and, you know, the, people, the local people who own it, but... Um, I don't, know, I don't mind paying a couple extra bucks for that. Like, like I mentioned to you earlier before we went live, I go to the market every Saturday with my fiance, and we get most of our groceries there, and you know we pick things up at Aldi and Wegmans. You can't get everything there, but it's nice to you know, just support in the, the, summer, the local scene, everything. right? In the summer, you can get you every, can get about everything, everything that's worthwhile getting. You might have to elbow some people to <laughs> fight for it, but in the winter, it's nice. You can park between uh, Shed A and C, where that gap is, where they have like all those flower vendors right. there in the yep. summer. You just zip right in through that side door, zip right out, good to go. Yeah, in another, <laughs> but in another month, it'll start getting very, very busy again. It will. We've had a very good uh, early uh, winter uh, market at the regional market for uh, our bakery, and we've been really happy with the response uh, because it's where you get to see a lot of people on a regular basis. And uh, in the restaurant and food industry, there's no better advertising than word of mouth. FaceTime. It's huge. It's podcast sponsored by the Scratch Scratch House Bakery. So, Scratch, Scratch Bakehouse. Bake I'm sorry. I knew That's I was okay. going to screw that up. That's okay. You know what? <laughs> Even we screw it up sometimes. <laughs> All right, cool. That makes me feel better. Uh, and actually, I had been in the stoop a few times, even though I mentioned I've only been in Syracuse for about two years. I've been in the stoop uh, a couple times for coffee because I used to work uh, around the corner, the f corner of uh, Franklin and uh... West Fayette. Yes, yeah, in that building there at uh, Turkey. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, so I my younger down there my for younger daughter worked for Turkey as an intern, and then uh, 
for a while after for about a year and a half. Okay, nice. Recently or? Um, well, not that recently because she's in New York now for two years and she was in Boston for two years. So I missed her then. Yeah. Huh. Very cool. Yeah, I, I liked the. Yeah, it's, you know, that's a great company. Yeah. They're they're, they're really uh, tremendous in what they do. They're Cherokee. huge. They have yeah. grown so much. Uh, they're very smart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were ahead of. Uh, I mentioned SEO before we went live, and you know the restaurants and who shows up on Google when you search best restaurants sure. isn't necessarily the best restaurants. It's the one who's, you know, paid Terakeet for the most backlinks to their website. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, they're uh, they were ahead of the curve. I, f I forget when uh, Mac and Pat there started, but um, they, uh, I want to say it was like early 2000s or yeah. even late 90s. They might have been. It could be. They've got be like 200 people now. No, they're they're a big international presence. Now. Yeah, they're, they're doing a lot of business. They're great at what they do. And they're great people. Yeah. So, Scratch Bakehouse. Said it right that time. Scratch Bakehouse. Get, it's you've the reincarnation right? of the Stoop Bakery Cafe. So uh, right now we have one location because I've just recently agreed to sell uh, my building at 311 West Fett where the Stoop and the Stoop Bakery was originally located. And we're relocating the cafe from that location to 629 West Fett Street in the next six weeks. We're in the process of doing that now. Okay, nice. So we will have two locations. That's not too far. Which is a, is which is a cafe with parking on West Fayette Street, 629, and then we have the bakery that has a retail counter uh, at uh, 446 East Brighton. Okay. Um, parking, that's nice. One thing I do not like going about going downtown is that I have to pay for parking. Well, it's one <laughs> of the reasons that I decided to sell the building and move uh, the bakery. Oh, really? Yeah, so, I mean, it's more accessible to people. And Fayette Street is a very busy street. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, easy access to downtown, easy access to Tip Hill, Onondaga Hill. Yep. And uh, it's great to have 15 dedicated spaces, and then there's actually plenty of street parking as well. That's very nice. Yeah, when I, uh, whenever I have to meet somebody, like, central location type of thing, uh, I always suggest Freedom of Espresso on Solar Street, because they have all that parking off street. Well, I've known but the people at Freedom of Espresso. Uh, no, I've known the people at Freedom of Espresso forever. And uh, they're kind enough that they uh, buy our bread and baked goods to sell in their Fayetteville location. Mm. How many uh, places do you sell your baked goods to? Well, right now uh, we make uh, we sell out uh, three times a week at uh, Green Star Natural Food Store in Ithaca. Uh, we're at the Syracuse Co-op. We're at Eleven Waters. We're at the um, European Specialty Store in Westville. Um, and we're uh, negotiating with about two or three others nice. in the near future. Very cool. And then we're at the we're at the market, the regional market Saturdays, Chade. We're at the winter, and we'll be at the summer market at the Fayetteville Mall, uh, and we'll be at the summer market in Hamilton. Gotcha. So before we were talking about. Uh, restaurant industry more generally and you said it's one of the hardest things you've ever done the hardest thing you've ever done i'm sorry yeah there's yeah I, I don't think there's any question in my mind of all the things i've done and i've done a lot of different things interesting things some easy some difficult the restaurant business is the most challenging 
I would use the word challenging okay. as opposed to hardest, even though I use the word hardest. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, because, um, yeah, you know, law school, uh, you've done a lot of different things. I mean, uh, why? I'm very interested to know why you think the restaurant industry and, and operating in that space has been the most difficult. Well, challenging. Sorry. For, yeah, first of all, uh, I think it always starts with uh, hiring training and keeping good employees. Mm -hmm. It's a business that has a lot of trans transitional employment. I look back at my records a, a few weeks ago. Uh, in one year, we went through 48 dishwashers at the Stoop. What? Yeah, it's... It's almost it, one a week. It's not... That's nuts. It's not unusual. Well, we had more than one dishwasher, but we went through 48 in one... Uh, and, and so... Uh, but the people generally in the restaurant industry who work in the industry, they're interesting, they're fun, they're thoughtful. Uh, for the most part, they really care about people. Uh, I think they have a lot of circumstances that uh, make it good for them to move from place to place uh, more often than maybe in some other industries. And then sometimes you have some people that work in the restaurant industry that are just hiding out for some reason, one reason or another, in one way or another. Uh, so it starts with the labor force is, is challenging. Um, the quality of the food and uh, doing all the things that are important and necessary to have safe food practices and healthy food, finding food that you want to use to meet your menu, uh, that doesn't make the menu too expensive for people to afford. Right. We were what's commonly referred to, although I hate the term, a farm-to-table restaurant in our last iteration. And, and a lot of people don't realize that it's much more expensive to buy from local growers than it is to buy from regional distributors. Right. Economies of scale. Uh, so if you want to have fresh products, whether it's in a bakery or in a restaurant... Uh, you have to make a commitment to controlling price really, really well um, because there's only so much people will spend on any given item. Right. So there's there are those things, and there's the physical plant, the health code uh, uh, compliance, um, and, and we haven't even talked about having a menu that is affordable, having a menu that people like, having a menu that people who want to come and eat. Yeah. Uh, this niche, several I'm assuming, times. right? Well, not necessarily. Um, in Syracuse, we find a lot of our successful restaurants are Italian or they're um, pubs. Um, and, and so there's nothing niche about them per se. But, of course, every restaurant wants to be known for its own identity. And in that sense, it's niche. Yeah. Because... I mean, like you were saying before, you were describing uh, not Eden, but the other one, uh, Saint Urban. Saint Urban, um, that they just do everything very uh, specifically. You said, like intentionally. You mean like intentionally? The, the entire I experience, aside from the food, yeah. is just crafted very well. Yeah, I think or, you can say that about both places, Eden and Saint Urban. They both have a philosophy of food. They both have a philosophy of human interaction. They both have a philosophy of the economies of their restaurants. Uh, 
they both have a philosophy specifically about what kind of food they make and what they make it with. And um, they're as uh, different as they can be, uh, but they're both extraordinary restaurants. They do a blind taste test, blind taste testing also. You think? Well, um, I I don't I'm not, I don't have uh, even even though I know the guys at uh, uh, Eden, I don't know all their internal practices. <laughs> Fair enough. I feel like that's something that should. I mean, you want to create the best product, right? Well, yeah, I mean, we did it in, in, our, in every, any place that I've been involved in. We've done a lot of blind tasting because it, it's surprising. You can be you can surprise yourself what you really like if you're not influenced by outside factors. Right. And we're all in, influenced by outside factors. We all have those biases. So it's really a benefit. It's an aid to finding the best products, at least in, in my world. It's yeah. an aid to finding the best products to... You know, have five items of something you're going to use regularly or even for one time and try to make sure that you have a consensus of what you want and why you want it after you've had the blind testing. Right. Hmm. So how did, because uh, Scratch Bakehouse started with the stoop, right? It's, it's, I'm going to say it's the stepchild of the stepchild. The yes. Move from reincarnation to stepchild. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> Same thing. Um, how did you first get into that industry in the first place? Like, how did you, how did the stoop first come to be? Well, I'll, I'll give you the short version. Sure. Um, I bought a building on, on uh, West Fayette Street uh, very early on, 1991, I think it was. And uh, I couldn't find any tenants that I was interested in leasing to, that I felt comfortable leasing my building to. And so um, I love pizza as much as anything else in the world. And Armory Square, which was in its infancy, didn't have any reasonably priced food in it. Mm -hmm. So I said, let's open a pizza shop. When was this? This was 1992. Okay. And uh, we did. We had a great uh, run of many years. Uh, and... Uh, was pizza it was shop easy. It slices, slices, and so, I like it. Uh, and and we did a lot of late night business uh, from ten o'clock till three, th three o'clock in the morning. Thursday, <laughs> Friday, Saturday nights we were after Kitty Hoynes lets out. Yeah, well, Kitty Hoynes uh, wasn't there when we opened. It it was the um, uh, the hotel. I forget the name of it now, but Kitty Hoynes is a great place, and yeah, yeah. they were. By the way, that's a great, great owner and somebody who's committed to this community. Uh, David Hoynes is just a fabulous person to have in this community, and what he does with his restaurant is spectacular. And um, we should all be very happy that he's here. Syracuse anyway, Staple. Syracuse Staple, and but he, his his uh, uh, what they do with the St. Baldrick. Uh, uh, charitable uh, operation that is coming up in the near future. They raise they raise an incredible, when I say incredible, half a million dollars really? every year or more. I, I think sometimes I uh, for this, and it's it's they're an institution in this city that should be supported. But it, when I say them, I mean uh, Kitty Hoynes. Yeah. So um, uh, there were a lot of bars early on. And uh, 
people wanted pizza. <laughs> True so story. We, we gave it to them, and we made, I thought, pretty good pizza. So, uh, But it, it seemed so easy, and it was so successful, and it was only on the first floor of the building. I said, well, the other thing I love is tequila. Why don't I open a tequila bar on the second floor? And that's what the stoop turned into originally. Really? So that was 94, and that was open between 94 and 2006. When 2006, I closed uh, uh, both restaurants because I was um, um, I was too busy pra practicing law 80 hours a week, and I just couldn't keep up with everything. <laughs> I can imagine. So you take the most difficult thing you've done in your life, multiply it by two, and then add 80 hours of practicing law on top of it. Yeah. So I was a busy guy. <laughs> That's craziness. How did uh, you even manage that? Well... Like, you know, I, I loved both things with a passion. I love the law, uh, even though I'm not practicing anymore, and I haven't practiced since uh, uh, a long time now. It's probably 15 years. To, I haven't practiced in the public. but um, And I love food, and I grew up in a household uh, with, um, you know, the consummate Jewish mom, where everything we did was centered around food and the importance of hospitality mm -hmm. and the graciousness, graciousness of having uh, visitors in your house and how they're treated and uh, the joy of food and the joy of eating and the joy of the community of the table. And um, so it really wasn't that unexpected that I would, when I had the chance, that I would be drawn to that because it's, it's still something really, really important to me. Yeah. Food brings people together. It does. As does coffee, right? As does coffee. <laughs> and it's, you know, in any community, uh, you have a great opportunity if you're in hospitality to, to use that uh, physical plant, to use that um, engagement for the purposes of assisting uh, social causes in your community. And so... Uh, um, along with running a restaurant, mm -hmm. uh, it was always important to me whenever we were were operating any food uh, establishment is that we made it available to people so that we could enhance uh, socially motivated not-for-profit companies mm. uh, in the community. Interesting. Either through fundraisers or giving over our space to them right. or wh whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so it, it was doubly uh, enriching for me. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you guys like have nonprofits host events or? Yeah, we do it. Uh, we did it a lot in yeah. the in the restaurant. It's a little bit more difficult. Well, right now we can't do it in the bakery because we don't have any seating uh, mm. until we open up the cafe okay. uh, where we'll be able to do events again. Right. Um, but it's a little bit harder. It's more limited in a bakery than it is a restaurant. Restaurants, you can do breakfast, lunch, dinner. You can do catered events. You can do special. Uh, bakeries are a little bit more limited what people, how people would like to use them for those kinds of purposes. But we still, we involve ourselves in every um, uh, silent auction that we can for charities. Okay. We involve ourselves in catering uh, food-related fundraising events. Uh, you know, a little while ago we did an event at Millionaire that um, uh, 
uh, we bring our uh, excess goods over to the rescue mission uh, nice. every other day or so. So, you know, you do what you can. I mean, I think that that's endemic in the restaurant industry. There are a lot of people that feel exactly that way. Yeah. And they do whatever they... Because the people who are in the restaurant business, many of them, if not most, have a feeling of wanting to improve the lives of people. Right. To give them joy. Well, there are a lot of different ways to give people joy. Yeah. And just one simple thing, bringing people together. Just like food, just like coffee, and just like toilet paper. So, by the way, this is uh, just tissues. <laughs> this That's is not. Okay. This is not from the bathroom directly. Don't worry. This is just. I, we don't buy tissues. We just it, toilet it, paper. It, remi it reminds me of a birthday <laughs> gift I got this past December. Which was? It was a roll of toilet paper that had a particular famous person's face on it. <laughs> Repetitively, uh, I'm not at this. Given what's going on in the world, I'm not going to say who it was. We can only guess. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, would <laughs> that's very funny. Um, I'm sorry. Just an aside. Uh, talk. You about... brought up the toilet. Paper. I sure did. No, yeah, I'm just... I'll take full responsibility for that. <laughs> Any ramifications, you can come back to me. Um, <laughs> talking about bringing the community together, uh, you were also a uh, on the board of trustees at the Everson. Yes. Uh, it's funny. I just happened to notice that on your Instagram profile, I'm um, I'm on the board of directors of the Believe in Syracuse organization. Sure. And uh, they're they're actually looking at doing a event at the Everson coming up. And it's a like, great oh, event space. No kidding. Yeah, it's an unbelievable yeah, event space. Somebody sent in pictures of the place. I'd never been in there. Uh, it, looked, it looked immaculate. It is very cool. It, oh, um, we, we've we've been blessed by uh, having a. Uh, a really proactive uh, board of uh, trustees uh, the last uh, three or four years in particular uh, who hired a spectacular uh, president and director uh, um, and and the the museum has evolved from just being an internationally known IMP building. It was the architect IMP's first museum. Hmm. And he's known in his lifetime as one of the great uh, architects of our age, and in particular, designer of museums. Really? So the physical plant of the Everson is incredibly important architecturally. And uh, in the last four or five years, it's gone from a place that has lessened its uh, footprint to a place that is once again a museum of national importance, um, and it's a it's a place that uh, Syracusans should be very proud of and should support. We have a great collection of uh, a contemporary art, but what it's known for all over the world is we have the f what most people believe is the finest collection of American pottery, hmm. uh, and. We now have a r relatively new curator who is generally considered to be the guy um, and, and with our executive director and our board and uh, just great things are happening there all the time. Yeah. And um, it's really uh, one of the last vestiges of original culture in, that survived in Syracuse, and we need to 
support it. Yeah, we're just working uh, a committee to uh, uh, reopen what used to be a very popular place, which was a little cafe in the uh, museum. So we're hopeful oh, that yeah? we're going to be able to accomplish that in the near future. We have a very prestigious national architectural firm working with us nice. who uh, won the uh, uh, process of uh, a selection process for that purpose. They're they're from Los Angeles. Wow, nice. So you're still involved with them then? Uh, and this, yeah, well, I'm always going to be involved in. in the <laughs> it's music. one of those lifetime was, membership whether things. Whether I'm a, whether I'm a <laughs> trustee or not, um, uh, my mom was a pianist and an artist. And, uh, you know, the art is very important to me. Um, I have a daughter who is a director at uh, uh, the Gagosian Gallery in Los Angeles, so oh. it's sort of a family thing. And uh, uh, and the people at the Everson are, are just so great, and every day working so hard for our community that anything I can do to even give a little inch of assistance, yeah. I'm happy to do. You've got your toes dipped in a lot of things in, in, in Syracuse, it sounds like. As far as, I mean, everything with the Stoop and Scratch House Bakery and the restaurant industry in general, art, law, you got a lot of tricks up your sleeve. Well, you know, um, I was raised to be involved. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't subscribe to the fact that, you know, you get to an age and you somehow just melt into the sunset. <laughs> Stop caring. Um, I, I want to care. I want to work hard. Yeah. I want to work, period. Uh, at something, uh, so you know, I still I still do mentoring. I taught uh, at Syracuse University, both at the management school and the College of Law for many years. Um, and and once I took a, I guess reverse sabbatical, and taught <laughs> full time at the management school. And uh, uh, I love the opportunity to do anything that helps anyone reach their highest self. The place where they want to be and need to be and are happy, and that's a hard thing to do in life. It's not easy. You need all the help you can get sometimes, and uh, so I've enjoyed teaching for many years, and I still mentor uh, regularly with people I meet who might need a little push or a little pull or a little assistance. Really? Yeah. So that's wild. That's an awesome thing to strive for. I'm. I think everyone should think like that. Well, I, no, I I don't agree that. No, I, everyone has their is their own self. Yeah, you know I, I I tell a story. There's a we have an unbelievable institution in Syracuse called On Point for College. Okay, and uh, Ginny Donahue's who's emeritus there now, started it I think 18 years ago or so, and in that period of time. It's touched the lives of almost 9,000 kids who were helped to go to college who never in their lifetime would have gone to college without the help of On Point for College. And what they've done has been tremendous. And I remember having a conversation with Ginny, and I said, Ginny, I would really love to be able to do something. You've done something so great. It's, it's unbelievable what you've accomplished. And, and she reminded me of something that's true in entrepreneurship, um, which is, she said, well, this was my thing. You'll find your thing, whether it's big or small, by whoever's standards, 
but it'll be your thing and that will be enough. And it's best advice I ever got because you have to be who you are and you can only be who you are. You can't be genuine trying to be something that somebody else was. Yep. And a cornerstone to joy and to happiness that's enduring is being honest and genuine with yourself, Authentic. in my opinion. Yeah. No, 100%. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, and I, I feel like everyone does, on some level, want to just help other people. And that manifests in different ways depending on who you are, right? Like whether it be, um, you know, somebody who's like a life coach or relationship coach or somebody who, you know, has a bakery and brings people together over coffee and a Danish, you know, it's like you're manifesting some good in the world. And I, I feel like most people want to do that. And I feel like, you know, as long as you're being true to yourself, like you're naturally going to move in that direction, I feel like. Well, I'm going to agree with you to this extent. Sure. Um, uh, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I could Sorry, do it. Sorry, I just laughed at you. <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's laughable. <laughs> but my, that's my point. Yeah. The fact that I want it, there's a large gap between thinking and saying that you want something and actually being committed to doing it. Putting in the work. So... It's all about the work. So wanting isn't enough. Well, plus there's the, uh, you know, you didn't maybe have the height to be a basketball player. Like there's genetic limitations uh, on all that I didn't have too. the height. I didn't have the athletic ability. I didn't have any of it. Well, I, mean, I just wanted it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but even uh, we were talking about earlier before we went live about people uh, with the wine, right? Yeah. Like people tasting wine. And many, most people who taste a 75 or more dollar bottle of wine can't really taste the difference between that and the $30 counterpart, right? And maybe they can taste the difference, but don't appreciate why one bottle is better than another. And often might like the more expensive bottle less yeah. than the less expensive bottle. And, and, and so um, it's just people... Now, when we were in the restaurant business, we wanted to have wine that people liked to drink. And we there are plenty of bottles of wine that you can buy in the world today that aren't that expensive. And so we weren't about a name. We were about, did people like it? And could they fit it in their budget, even in a fine dining restaurant? And, and the point is, fit within... Who you are and what you like you you don't need to think well what would a wine connoisseur say if i yeah. chose that wine it's irrelevant do you like it drink it yeah it goes back to that uh you know ego posturing type of thing people like to be seen drinking the 75 dollar bottle of wine it's like come on or 175 or 750 <laughs> the point is the, the it, it's it's okay whether you want the ten dollar bottle of wine or the hundred and seventy five dollar bottle of wine. It doesn't it doesn't change who you are. Yeah. It only changes who you are if you buy the bottle that isn't you. Yeah. Then you're fighting yourself. Yeah. And that creates some some tension, I might imagine. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a minor tension. It's not like fighting a war you shouldn't be in. Well, if that's the extent of it, then yes. uh, yeah, yeah. the only problem you have is you you order the wrong bottle of wine because you're worried about what other people think of you, then that's probably okay. But something tells me that if you're doing that, there might be something else going on. Maybe. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Scratch Bakehouse, what, uh, move into a new location. What do you envision the future being like? in the next couple of years for the Scratch Bakehouse? Well, you know, it's um, the the reason that I wanted to start a bakery when I first did mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago uh, was the enormously important experience I had as a kid growing up. Um, my family, uh, like a lot of Jewish families, lived on the east side of Syracuse um, for a host of reasons. Um, and there I'll was a bakery called uh, Snowflake Bakery, who many, many people still remember fondly. And uh, every Sunday, uh, we would go to the um, the butcher, the deli, the grocery store, the fishmonger, and to uh, uh, the Snowflake. And it would be a family thing. And then we would go home and we would eat our Sunday meal together. And it was so important to me as a kid. And so I thought bakery is a great opportunity. Um, Not an Italian bakery, not a Jewish bakery, not an ex-bakery, but just a bakery that's part of the neighborhood that makes you feel like you are part of it. Right. And um, this is my goal for... Uh, the Scratch Bakehouse. We we do a form of bread that really isn't done in upstate New York. Hmm. Um, we have a great following very early in our in our lifetime um, uh, by uh, Middle Eastern and Central and Eastern European cultures. Um, because of them, I've taken to calling it real bread. Mm. It's brown bread. It's not white bread. What does that mean? Um, the flour is brown and you look at it and the bread is dark brown and sometimes it's really dark brown and it's not because it's burnt it's not like it's not like whole wheat versus white though right it's it's different well, than all that. of our all of our breads are organic all of our breads are multi-grain all of our breads are made with brown flour okay and the interesting anomaly is they're high in gluten which causes a caramelization to happen which enhances the brown color but the process, because every loaf of bread from start to finish is 72 hours, um, the gluten is processed out so that we've had a easily a 95% success rate with gluten-sensitive people being able to eat our bread, mm. uh, which is true of other artisan breads. It's not just us. Yeah, yeah. But here we have, uh, because of the, the whole process, which includes sourdough leavening, doesn't mean it tastes okay. like San Francisco sourdough, but it's part of the process. Um, uh, we've we've taken all the opportunities that we can with bread to make it both nutritious and delicious. So it has an actual flavor. And um, it's not just something that you put meat in between to make a sandwich. <laughs> it enhances what you do with it, whether it's toast or bread or sopping up sauces or whatever it is. So um, we, we, we want to... And all of our pastries, we have French and American pastries as well, 
made as in some form or another with this almost all of them made with the same flour so um we we want to be the best we can be in what we do other bakeries do what they do and they're great but the point is there's not just one great way to be yeah and not one way to be great there's not just one bread there's not just one donut there's whatever it is um one of the things that I love about what's happening in Syracuse today is that there's so many new opportunities to try new things that aren't just the same old thing. Right. That um, I continue to want to be part of that evolution of Syracuse with our bakery products. Yeah. It's funny uh, you mentioned that there's so many different things. Like, I don't know if you browse around at the market ever, but there's a vendor there called Anything But Beer. Sure. And that you familiar They're, with them? I'm friends with them. As a matter of oh, fact, yeah? when I closed the restaurant, uh, I invited them over to help them out to uh, get some of their uh, smalls and other equipment to get their new facility started. Nice. Yeah, they're great people. What they're doing is unbelievable. It's just something I've and, never heard of before. Well, like, talk about trying something new. And, and, and people embrace them immediately because of who they are and what they stand for right and how good their product is yeah and so even if you're not, even if you're a person who wants alcoholic beer as opposed to non-alcoholic right beer, then you're still going to love their product and i can't wait for them to open up because i think people are going to love what they're doing so they're opening up a they're opening up their own uh bricks and mortar uh tasting and it's going to have some food and okay cool uh uh it, the, and they're very serious they're very they're fun people, but they're very serious about what they do, and uh, those are the kind of people I like the best. They don't screw business. around when it comes to business. Yeah, they do what they do. I like that. No, you got to be serious about what they're, you do. They're a thousand percent invested in creating an experience in Syracuse that, that can't be duplicated. Yeah, so. I mean, in a world, or especially Syracuse, think about how many breweries have been popping up, right? Like to have something, you know, sort of like a brewery, but not anything but beer quite literally in the title right in the title um, but you should everybody should be looking out for their opening and they're on washington and salina okay the corner there uh and you're gonna love it all right i'll check it out interesting yeah it's funny i i grew up in binghamton vestal and went to school in oswego and so i ended up here because of my girlfriend now fiance and um all of her friends, whenever I meet them, no, I shouldn't say all of them, blanket all of her friends like that, but uh, I hear a lot of people from Syracuse that are like, Syracuse, and eh, nothing's going on in Syracuse, I'm getting the hell out of here. Like, not true anymore. A lot of people, a lot of people say that. Syracuse has turned the corner. It's it seems like it. No, it really does. It doesn't seem like it. It is. It's yeah. happened. Now, are we all the way there? No. Of course not. But in the last three years, there has been a major shift in what's going on in Syracuse and the quality of what's going on and the differentiation that's going on. Um, the the new uh, city market that's going to hopefully be opened, I think, in the fall of next year uh, in, in the empty lot right behind Hotel Syracuse, um, which is going to be a collection of first-time uh, business owners okay, um, and ethnic and awesome ethnicities of business owners that's being supported by 
the uh, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to say the Welsh one the new Welsh Allen Foundation. Okay. I'm not sure I know the particular name of it, but that's the Grain source. Of salt. <laughs> um, and maybe it's just Allen, and if it is, I apologize. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, but this is an indication of this is what happens in a, in a in a quote real city. Right. Chances are taken. Money is invested. Different segments. Uh, we have an incredible cultural and eth ethnic uh, variety in Syracuse that is now being celebrated. And it's now being welcomed with opened arms. And this is part of what's going to make Syracuse uh, reach its potential as a, as a great city. Make Syracuse great again? I had to throw that in there. Um, I won't say those words. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel like since I've been in Syracuse, it definitely seems like the uh, everything's shifted a little bit, you know? And that, I don't know, there's just, again, I, I have the perspective of coming from Binghamton and Oswego. There's just so much more opportunity here than those places. And... What else have you noticed in the last three years? I, I didn't even know about the city market. I didn't even heard of that. Um, well, they, they, they've done, they spent the last year uh, cultivating and having a uh, really uh, competition to name uh, the eight, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, ethnically minority uh, operators. And they just announced them today, I think, or okay. yesterday. Um, the market was announced about uh, first time six months ago. Uh, the, the, the location is being prepared now for construction, I think, in the spring to open in next fall. And um, it's just another thing. I mean, there are 15 or more new restaurants in downtown in the last year and a half. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Uh, maybe too many for some people, but... And and they haven't even touched the base of the lakefront development. Yeah, uh, which is going to be a whole another thing. Uh, there are going to be more businesses and and more restaurants and more uh, facilities and more offices and much more residential uh, around Onondaga Lake, which is really quite beautiful. And, sure is. And so every city has seized probably starting 20 years ago to establish a lakefront uh, existence. Syracuse was way behind the curve. Of course, it helps now that the lake is marginally clean. Yeah, they've been cleaning it up. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, and, and we now have a mayor uh, who has a vision. Mm -hmm. And it's not a one-year vision or a two-year vision. Uh, we're fortunate to have a mayor who has a vision that says we need to know where we want to be in 15 years or 20 years right. and we have to start working today to be there and uh, you see announcements coming out of the mayor's office on a regular basis um, to, uh, uh, to show a pathway towards that and look, you know, you're going to have a uh, you're going to have a massive 
transportation hub here uh, because there has to be a massive transportation hub to uh, service the Amazon facility that's going right. to be here. And, you know, we're one of 13 cities that has that now or is going to have it. It's important. We wouldn't have had that before. And so every day we have great, we have a great tech center, the center state CEO, who, is our, who is our chamber of commerce in essence, has done fantastic things. Um, we're the, we're the, um, we're, we're the hub for drone development. Drone capital of the world, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but not just that. That's the most visible thing. But so uh, Syracuse University, when I was a professor there full time, I was in the entrepreneurship department okay. in the management school. And one of the things that I was tasked with was to make entrepreneurship, or not to make it, but to help facilitate it being a campus-wide uh, um, reality. Yeah. And year in and year out now, Syracuse University is in the very top echelon of the most entrepreneurial universities in the United States. Mm, I didn't know that. And, and so you see all these indicia, the museum, the, the resurrection of the symphony through symphoria, through the hard work and the dedication and the, I think the, um, uh, uh, the charity almost of the musicians that are dedicated to their, their life of music and to, to a viable opera society. I mean, we're a real city. To Syracuse Stage, we have in some form or another a very high quality um, entity of every type of thing you'd want to see in a city that you live in, in a place where it's one of the least expensive housing markets yeah. in the United States. Now, real estate taxes are pretty high, and we still have to do something about that. But um, uh, and and we're a regional medical center, and we have four really good academic, probably more. I'm, I don't mean to leave anybody out. <laughs> But really, is so upset really, right now. Well, you know, <laughs> I taught paralegals at Bryant and Stratton oh, yeah? 25 years ago. No kidding. Because they were ahead of the curve, and I think they probably uh, started to some, some extent. So um, in any event, we have all this. And, and, and you know what? From the time that I grew up here, the weather has changed dramatically. You don't say. We actually have four seasons. Now, maybe it's too cold and the winter's too long or there's too much snow, but and maybe we don't get enough sun all the time. But, you know, if any of you out there are bike riders, I challenge you to find, uh, if, you, if you take out the mountain ranges of Europe, I challenge you to find much better on-the-road bike riding experiences than you can find in Onondaga and Madison counties. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it, we're we're just enriched with having had the glaciers move through Syracuse and create beautiful topography. Yeah, and and so if you can tell, I mean, I live here because I choose to live here. Yeah. I could have lived anywhere in the world, and I I I have no interest in leaving here. I think it has everything. Yeah, it definitely. That you make a very strong argument, my friend. 
um, between the geography and all the things that are happening with the city and, and the innovation and all the entrepreneurship and just, I don't know, it just seems like it's definitely on the rise. And podcasts. And podcasts. Look no. at what we're going on. Look yeah, what's going it's on a, right here. No, it's all, <laughs> it's all going on. We have people who are dedicated to this community. We have lots of groups, lots of podcasters and you know, the We Believe in Syracuse's and, and uh, CNY Eats and uh, the number of things that are going on, the dinners that are put on uh, by people who are really interested in promoting good food and quality food and good eating in Syracuse and the restaurants that are trying to work to raise to the highest level um, and the fun bars, the speakeasies and um, actually, the stoop was the first speakeasy in Syracuse, modern speakeasy. Hmm. I was going to say, what exactly is a speakeasy in 2020? Oh, in 2020? Um, well, it's the same thing. That, in, I mean, they started in the Prohibition because mm -hmm. they were a necessity. Right. You had to keep the police out of shutting you down Don't by know. having a place that nobody knew was selling alcohol. Right. Well... Now they've taken the fun part of that, which is the mystery. And it's a little bit of hype and uh, a little bit of... Uh, but it, it's just a fun place that has a little bit of drama about getting in or finding it okay. or walking into it. Um, and, and many of which adopt a sort of a 1920s or 30s prohibition type attitude and decor and... They're fun places. Yeah. That's what they are, is they're fun places. There's a place in Binghamton, and I don't even know the name of it. Um, it's it's right in downtown Binghamton. Not that it's big, but uh, it's uh, you walk through these doors, and they look very unsuspecting, I believe. And I think it's just bookcases in front of you. But then you open the bookcase, and it's like uh, a distillery, I think. Sure. Oh, well, one cool. of the first best ones in New York City. Um, you know, you walked in through a telephone booth. Oh, really? A telephone booth that was in a pizza shop. <laughs> That's funny. And uh, you had to dial the right number. Oh, so you and needed that, the code, too. You needed the code. Ah. And that was really secret. It, it wasn't like, we're secret, but if you do the right thing, you can call us up and get it. You, it was really hard to get. No, was, is this modern times or is this during the during the No, no, this was in the recent... So we opened the stoop in 1994. This was in the late 90s. Okay. That's cool, though. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's all good. Yeah, it is all good. There's so much good, right? There is. It's just got to look for it. It's so funny how you mentioned, like, the weather, too. And, of course, the weather's changing and whatever. But, um, like, just people complain about the weather in Syracuse all the time, right? The snow. But... And I think in the Northeast, generally, right, we all get hit with snow pretty hard. I think it makes you tougher. I think it's a good thing. Like, can you imagine living in L.A., like your daughter, and, you know, never having to scrape, having to scrape off your windshield ever? Like, no. just living in that convenience? No, I could like, not. It makes I could you a not. little bit tougher, you know? I could not. You just um, coddled over there. But, you know, it used to be colder, and there used to be more snow. Right. Um I don't know if that's supportable by the data, but uh, maybe it's just a kid's memory. But <laughs> we can leave um, that for another time. The thing that's beautiful today is, is that clothing is so good 
it's not hard to be outside in the winter in Syracuse. Yeah, it's true. The clothing is warm and it's light, and uh, it's it's more and more affordable day by day. But certainly, if you live here, then it's much better if you choose to be an ice skater or a snowshoer or a skier uh, or a toboganner or yeah. something uh, or just a hiker who doesn't mind uh, dressing for the weather. Snowshoes. Snowshoeing is, is a great, great thing. Cross-country skiing. Cross-country of... skiing. And, and you can do that in so many places for free in yeah. Syracuse or for nominal in some of the state parks that have groomed trails for ten dollars for the season or whatever it is so um and and i i defy people summer in syracuse is gorgeous the weather's beautiful it's wonderful i won't go anywhere in the summer i love being here it is wonderful my uh folks have a place uh in bridgeport on oneida lake yeah um and i grew up at least in high school Coming up here, like every weekend, I'd work in Binghamton, you know, like during the summer, I'd work on the weekend or during the week and then on the weekends, come up and, you know, spend the day on the lake. It was the weekend on the lake. It was beautiful. It's, it's gorgeous here. It really is. And I know the snow is like inconvenient stuff, but like you mentioned, the technology as far as clothing and all that, you can get a remote start in your car if you want and you could defrost that windshield from your, from the comfort of your home if you really want to. But and we're the, the snow so beautiful we're the home too. of... Uh... Jeep, uh, all-wheel drive. Are we? I mean, look around you. See how many oh. SUVs or Jeeps. <laughs> yeah. So you can, you can, or Subarus. I mean, you can buy cars that are fine in the snow and ice. It's, uh, uh, whether they're used or new, you can buy them. You know? It's excellent. Um, is, so you were a teacher at, and I'll change gears here, uh, you were a teacher at SU for a while. Well, uh, for many years... I would teach, uh, I was an adjunct at okay. the law school one semester, an adjunct at the management school the opposite semester. And then uh, I was given the opportunity to uh, be appointed as the first uh, Whitman professor of entrepreneurial practice, which I grabbed. I was so, I was so grateful for uh, the opportunity. I bet. And uh, I loved what it entailed. and. Uh, we did a lot of wonderful things, started a creativity, uh, innovation, and entrepreneurship learning community at Syracuse University, uh, which took up one whole floor at Del Plain Hall, which is still there, and every year it's producing uh, uh, college student-devised new businesses and uh, we had the Near Southwest Community uh, Initiative, which resulted in the incubator that's uh, in the building that Duncan Bright was kind enough to donate to that mm -hmm. purpose. And we, we started some grassroots new businesses on the Southwest side. And uh, there's boot camps and there's uh, WISE, uh, the women's um, uh, uh, initiative, uh, for entrepreneurship that was created during that period of time that's so in influential uh, nationwide now and has a home 
I believe, unless it's moved, but I, I think it's home now is at, uh, in the center state CEO okay. uh, offices, and I'm sorry if I'm wrong about that, but that was created during that period of time uh, where entrepreneurship was a key initiative for Syracuse University as a whole, and certainly for the Whitman School. It's, yeah. it's known for it now. And so um, I believe, you know, during the period of our bad economy, um, the the life jacket for our economy was entrepreneurship. 100%. It was a number of people who didn't have a choice, maybe, but saw it as the time to do something on their own, to start their own business. Uh, and it's American. Um, you know, this country was built on the back of immigrants. This country is made great by immigration and immigrants. 100%. Um, these people who have come over the last uh, 130 years are people who desire to have a better life, to have freedom, to have consistency of government uh, that would protect their rights and that would give them the opportunity to do whatever they could or wanted to do with their lives. And there just aren't that many places left. It's true. And we should never give up all the things that make it viable for that to happen. I couldn't agree with you more. It's it's funny how, like we were just talking about the weather and how, you know, people like to complain about the weather. Everyone always sees the bad part of things, right? Like, of course, are there problems? Yes, of course. Nothing's going to be perfect. It's okay. But all in all, we're doing pretty damn good. We have, you mean in Syracuse or in general? In general. No, no, no. It's just talking about you know immigrants and everything, like coming over here and being able to have that freedom to practice your trade and you know speak your mind and yeah. do a podcast and that say be, whatever that, goofy that, stuff you want to say. <laughs> like That used to be true until recently. What's that? All the things you just said. How, what do you mean? How so? It just isn't true anymore. What, what part specifically? Well, we're not a country that is open to immigration. We're not a country that's open to minorities. We're not a country that's open to the freedom of difference of thought. And we're not a country right now that's open to the justice of uh, our basic constitutional um, tenets. Hmm. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have blanketed it so uh, generously. But and I, I feel like it... It's so... Uh, we And we have problems. We've had problems yeah, for a long time. They're not course. just the last three years. Our education, our educational system needs to be fixed for the United States not to be in the top 60 countries for education is inexcusable. The fact that we don't... Um, what All the things that the politicians could do, whether with the defense budget or taxes... Um, and, and I don't mean taxing the poor and the middle class more, um, but in the tax structure mm -hmm. um, to uh, improve education, to um, honor our teachers, um, to make education important again and not make it judged just by standardized testing that is socially unequal. Mm -hmm. I say socially, it could be ethnically unequal as well, 
but I'm going to say socially unequal, yeah. socioeconomically unequal. And it's a um, business. There are things we have to do that are better. Um, and I'm not sure that I have any of the answers, let alone all of them. But uh, this is a country that still has all of the essentials to be the best country in the world. Yeah, that's more what I was getting at. <laughs> um, the education thing is really interesting with the, the cost being so high now. As somebody with a background in entrepreneurship, and still an entrepreneur, of course, um, and, and also a professor, what's your opinion on the entire education thing? Well, there's a whole segment of the world that won't like what I have to say, but um, I mean, there, there are two things that it's pretty obvious to objective observers. Um, and I'm not saying I believe in either of them, but I'm, they're pretty obvious to objective observers. Right. One is that college isn't for everybody. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, college is counterproductive to a large number of the people that go. 100%. Um, and, and the second thing is education, like all other well-run businesses, should be a meritocracy. And that means you can't pick a period of time, call it tenure, and then dispose of the obligation year after year to still be a great teacher. Yeah. We don't, even our universities today, are less and less teaching institutions and more and more research institutions mm -hmm. because they survive from the money they get from private industry to do research. Right. They don't survive. I mean, uh, uh, many universities will tell you that they're not interested in having professors who aren't tenure track, who are just teachers. They don't want them anymore. <laughs> what they want... That's what my fiancé wants to do. <laughs> what, what they want instead is they want to pe take teachers, people who want to teach, and they want to make them adjuncts. And instead of paying them even a base professorial uh, wage, they want to pay them $5,000 a semester to teach two courses. Crazy. But these are people who want to teach. They don't want to be tenure track. And so they're all, I mean, I can give, there are a million different problems. They're, they're not all solvable completely, but they're all things that can be approached from different directions to assist them to be better. Yeah. As far as, it's so funny, when, I mean, I was one of those people who went to college because I wasn't a loser and got to go to college, right? But I, I knew I didn't, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. I was pretty sure I wanted to be an entrepreneur, though, do something on my own. Um, I didn't know how that would manifest, but uh, and I, I don't want to. I say that, but I don't want to take away the fact that college was a good uh, growth experience for me, and that I went in a very immature person and came out a lot more mature. And I'm sure I would have gotten that growth experience in another way during those four years had I not gone. But it's funny now because I'm, you know, paying my student debt and the entire ramifications of the, the whole thing, um, yet not using my degree. It's it's very interesting. And I was fortunate enough to have some help from my folks. Uh, I didn't have to finance the entire thing myself. but And, and I went to SUNY. I, did, I didn't, uh, you know, go to SU, go to Villanova, go to one of these more prestigious schools and 
pay for it. But now, just thinking about all the debt and like, if I had a uh, a student loan payment that was as much as my rent payment, which is a reality for some people that they're going to be paying for a long, long time, like that is just and, and to not use the degree, it it's it's crazy. It is right. crazy. It is. Um, you know, there are a lot of things to do in life that are useful. Yeah. And and I don't for a minute disregard that there is a socialization maturation that's available in college. Yes. Uh, the number of things that I learned or that I helped other people to learn in college, socially or socioeconomically, were tremendous, but maybe not necessary. And, and some part of me thinks that we have to get back to the necessary first. It's like when you have a business, are you expense-driven or revenue-driven? Do you worry first about what things cost? Or are you driven by how much you sell? Right. And there's a conflict that's in essence. Well, college is nice. It probably could be nice for everybody if they didn't come out with debt. Um, but is it necessary? And should we focus there are secondary schools, our, our, our colleges and universities, our postdoctoral degrees um, in the right place so that we're doing what's necessary, not to deprive them, not to say somebody can't, yeah. but to make the options as attractive yeah. as they should be. And societally acceptable. Yes, that's what I mean by attractive. Yeah. Um, and so I'm a big proponent of, of that, uh, you know, because I when I went to college, I went to college. I didn't. I was in the '60s. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I was a finance major at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and oh. I'm glad I got that finance education. I never used it as a finance person mm -hmm. per se, and um, I went to law school because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but. When I was in law school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and it was perfect. I was lucky. But um, so I think, uh, you know, my younger daughter is out of uh, college. She went to Syracuse University. Okay. Um, and she's out of college now almost four years, and now she wants to get a master's. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. Yeah. Because now she has a better idea of what her life is like and what she needs in her life. And she, and that's terrific. And, you know, she's going to struggle. You know, she was fortunate enough to get an academic scholarship at Syracuse. And she's going to hope to do that, too. But mm -hmm. she, she's going to face the reality of having to work and get a student loan and all that stuff. Um, it's like scraping the ice off your windshield. But you know what? It makes you tougher. My, my mother, God bless her, when I was 14, she got me a green card. She got me a job in a construction site with a friend of her family's. Nice. And she you said, 15? 14. 14. And she said, now, whatever you want for the rest of your life, you can buy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a method to that madness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I started my first business when I was 15, and I put myself through school. 
Nice. And my parents could have afforded to pay for school. Right. But they taught me the lesson. So um, we need to do more of that. Accountability is a big thing in life today that's missing in huge proportions in large um, places uh, in the world. Yeah. I. It's funny you say that about... Uh the job when you were 14 I got my first job when I was 15 um not quite uh that young and I don't think and I think even 15 I don't think I was supposed to be working there I was a friend of my dad's owned an ice cream store and I scooped ice cream but I, I loved ice cream so it was cool I got free ice cream <laughs> but um so you know food always has a benefit exactly exactly and I uh I really valued that experience. Not all my friends had jobs in high school, but I always really valued that experience. And my dad always, uh, one thing, if there's like one phrase my dad uh, drilled into me when I was young, it was hard work pays off. And I think that's incredibly important, just generally in life. Like you need to, you need to work for the things, like life doesn't just fall on your lap, right? Like you need to work for it. Yeah. Hard work doesn't guarantee that things <laughs> fall in your lap, True. but it makes it more likely. Yeah, exactly. Like you, uh, you know, it's funny. I like having the debate about luck with people, uh, whether you know luck exists or not. But really, you're uh, you're improving your odds of being lucky, right? Well, like you're improving the I, odds I, by putting yourself out there that in, things in every, are going to happen for you. In every course I've ever taught, I teach what I call the principle of the wide decision. And that's just uh, a thousand times a year you face a Y intersection where you have to decide, do I go left or right? Right. I'm being, you know, uh, metaphorical there, I guess. Um, and so do you impact whether you have good fortune? I won't call it luck. I'll call it good fortune. You do. Oh, Can yeah. you predict that you're going to have that good fortune by the decision you make, you can't. So, um, but you, you, if you understand that every decision you make has an impact on the rest of your life, then you can be accountable for making that decision. And it's in being accountable that you are, you are more likely to find that you have better or more good luck than others. It's so funny you use that word accountable. Right there where that foam square is, I had a sign, and I, I wish it was up now. Uh, it said you, it says you are accountable, and I have it on my nightstand. Just because it's, it's everything. Like, in going back to the, the lesson your parents taught you by, here, you're going to pay for everything else for the rest of your life. Um, because like that, that was empowering. By the way, that wasn't a hundred percent true, but it was still pretty dinner. true. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got a lot of dinners. <laughs> That's important. Um, no, it, it's huge though. Like it's it's not only it's not it is burdening you, yes, with responsibility, but that responsibility comes with freedom. Like the, the two go hand in hand, and I think people forget that. And and it's funny how oh, it's a price you pay for freedom. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Right. If you are not accountable, you do not have freedom. Right. Because if you are accountable, if you're not accountable to yourself, you're accountable to somebody else, and therefore you have deprived yourself of your freedom. Yes. By definition. 
I like that. That's a better way to phrase it. I have, uh, I, my fiance works in Eggers Hall at SU and she works in a, uh, a research, you gotta get out of here, I wanna be respectful of your time. Mm, a little bit. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, she works in a research uh, center, I think it's called the Learner Center, and they do Healthy Monday campaigns, Meatless mm -hmm. Monday, all these things, uh, you know, Move It Monday, whatever. Um, but the, it's a research center, so it's very focused on research and policy and how that impacts, you know, uh, you know, people downstream, of course. Um, and I, that's obviously immensely important. And I, I have this discussion with her sometimes that, you know, you are not just the product of the policy that is imposed upon you. You are an individual and you have the power to make those decisions at those whys every day of your life. And you can improve your life by making the right decisions. Granted, some people have, you know, uh, some people are dealt a harder or, or worse hand than others, but everyone is still dealt 24 hours in a day and you can choose to do with that what you will and you can make the best of it or you can play victim, fall just to your circumstances and say, I got dealt a shit hand, this sucks and, uh, and, and really just kind of throw in the towel as yeah. a result. If, and it's unfortunate. If, you, if you allow yourself to be a victim, you give up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. The, uh, any control over your life. Exactly. And isn't that scary? But it's so... It, I'm, I'm getting fuzzy here on the connection. You were talking about uh, the I job imagine, you had when yeah. you were younger. Um, do you think that in today's world where we're all very sensitive to how other people feel and, and these kinds of things... And... I don't think we're all very sensitive about how other people feel. <laughs> Maybe all the people you know so, or you associate with are, but certainly not oh, all. Oh, I try not the, to. But certainly all of the people are not sensitive to other people's let me, plight. Let me put it like this. Uh, all the loudest people on Twitter are very sensitive to how other people feel and are, are very uh, quick to... Um, oh, jeez, I'm losing my train of thought here. Just... Uh, I, how do I phrase this? Do you feel like we're soft <laughs> as, as a society? Do you feel like we're getting too sensitive to each other's feelings where we don't want uh, mom to hand 14-year-old son the green card and say, you have a job now, you can pay for it, for things because because that's uh, a form of child abuse in some way. Like, Do you, th do you think we're well, getting a little... It is. First of all, it's, it's not child abuse, but I understand, Agreed, 100%. But I understand your question. <laughs> I understand your question. Um, I believe that there is a very difficult push-pull yes. between political correctness and the concept of accountability and honesty. Um, being from a background that has, for as long as there's been civilization, has been an endangered species in this world, um, that there has never been a time in this world when there wasn't at least one major group of people swearing to wipe my people off the face of the earth. I'm very sensitive 
to all of the key words and the socially inept words and the ignorance about that fact and all the things that go with it historically and today. And yet I still feel that sometimes we go overboard. We go too far looking for that correctness because people, it is a substitute for people listening to context. We've given up listening to context because everything is a five-second soundbite. Everything is a five-second screen. Everything, um, the number of people who I taught in college who were incapable of writing a sentence or a paragraph was astounding because it's not required anymore. I mean, I didn't go to parochial school, but I had a sixth grade teacher who used to walk around the classroom with a ruler while she taught us how to diagram sentences and used to walk home with a sore hand if you didn't do your work. Well, do I think that kind of thing is abusive? Personally, I do not. Do I think a parent choosing between spanking or not spanking their kid as punishment is abusive? I do not. There's a difference between spanking and assaulting. Yes. And so, but we've lost context. We've lost degree. Everything is black or white. That's a whole nother issue. Yeah. But um, You'll have to come back on. <laughs> um, so, so I know exactly what you're saying. I don't know if it's a matter of being soft. It's a matter of being lazy. Yeah. Hmm. First. First and foremost. Lazy thinkers. I, well, or not thinking at all. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Either, you know, either you're okay with white supremacists in the world or you're not. Now, um, that's an easy one. But uh, how about the right of Mormons to live their life the way they want to live it within their own community? Well, it's not as easy a question. I don't have context. So I, I, I shouldn't jump to an answer. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is there are th certain things that are appalling to me that would be appalling to me in my life, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. Yeah. They, that's their world. They have a right to be in their world. They have the right to live, whether it's any extreme conservative group of people. You know, people would be amazed that, you know, the, the non- leftist or rightist Muslims or Jews in the world get along perfectly I bet. because their religions are almost identical. It's at the outer fringes that it doesn't work. The extremists. And so um, these are hard questions in the world today. You know, do we support somebody who has this belief and not this belief even though his overall beliefs are really good, or his or her mm -hmm. are really good. These are hard questions today because nobody has the time to explain mm -hmm. anything. Nobody takes the time, not nobody, that's oversimplification, but people just don't, they want to know, they want to get to the answer. What's the answer? Yes or no? Five second soundbite. And people, 
Not good for me. No. Because I I like to understand things. It's not good for anybody though. Well, when the problem is like, and I'm glad you mentioned that five second soundbite thing though, because that's again we talked about we we enjoy being part of the human race because humans are interesting. Um, that's one reason I started doing this podcast. And what you just said about the five second soundbite thing is number two because I think uh, not enough uh, discussion is had like uh, this kind of discussion and and we really do in order to move the needle forward and progress towards a a better uh, society for everyone need to be open and have these conversations about controversial topics because you know it's if you just shut the door and and don't invite any discussion at all then then that's when people jump to conclusions and and this whole thing of you know, I mentioned the people on Twitter, which very much the extremists you uh, you referenced as well. Some are. Just, yeah, yeah. Not not everyone on Twitter. It's, it's, it's a good point. But um, it, it's I, I think it's important. Communication is important. Open lines of communication is important. Yeah, and you know there there are about five people on Twitter that I follow that I'm willing to uh, read, take the time to read what they say, and there are some people. Who I'll always read, and there's some people if they come on the radio, I have to turn the radio off because I can't listen to them spew ugliness or um, uh, indignation about things that they're ignorant about, or yeah. that they, or that they choose to be ignorant about, or that they don't even know that they're ignorant about it, and and it's hard. Um, you know, I applaud the ACLU because they will stand up for anyone who needs to have assistance in preserving the right of free thought and speech even though i might hate that free thought mm -hmm. and speech still it's so necessary it is and we have no room for that anymore yeah we have no room for the faith that if we let people we don't agree with speak they will screw themselves in the long term because you'll know who they are oh yeah and if they don't if you and, and otherwise if you agree with them great then that's who you are yeah but that's that's where we want to be as a country as a nation as a people we want to have free discourse because not all democrats are bad not all republicans are bad not all moderates or you know People who are on the right or the left have some good ideas. 100%. Is is um, medical insurance for all a good thing? In theory, it is. Can you go from what we have to that in one step? We can't. And it doesn't mean that we don't think the people espousing it are good and thoughtful and smart. Maybe we just don't agree with the way they're going to get there. Context. That happens a thousand times a day, and it's all about context. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's funny. Uh, we have the right to free speech, right? But you don't have the right to not be offended by other people. Like, but it seems like people uh, something offends somebody, and then there it, it creates a, a problem, right? But that's part of free speech. It is. You can't. It's why the ACLU has been representing white supremacists and Nazis and since the day that the ACLU started the first 
big case to protect freedom of speech for white supremacists, who did they put on it? They put a Jewish person to represent the person, to show what their belief was in the freedom of speech, mm -hmm. how important it is for everybody. I'd, but violent speech, speech that incites crime, there's a limit. Yes. There's a line. And, and nobody says that free speech can be absolute. Right. It can be large and overwhelmingly important. But if it incites crime intentionally, and I know that you start getting vague when Fuzzy, you yeah. say intentionally, and I recognize that. But if it's clear or plain to anyone mm -hmm. that the purpose of the speech is to incite specific crime, I don't think it's protected anymore, even though I support the Constitution as much as anybody could. Yeah. I believe in it. But we have to understand the accountability of boundaries and the accountability of individual behavior. And what we know today is that political correctness is not a substitute for accountability. No. Absolutely And not. it never will be. No. So. Well, you know, uh, I think, and I don't remember the context, but uh, the beginning of this, one of the one word you used was intention, and I think that word is immensely important. Intentionality. When it comes to this entire thing. It is. It's huge, but but it, it can be dangerous trying to, you know. I I um, I'm I'm an independent politically, okay. And it can be dangerous when you try to read into somebody's intention. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a big debate: what did Trump intend in his mind to do? And the Republicans have been very good to talk about, you know, it could have been this, it could have been that. And the Democrats have been tried to be very good about saying, well, look at the context. You can't interpret it that way. Mm -hmm. but of course, you can interpret it any way you want. So there are fuzzy areas, and we have to allow the fuzzy areas to exist until they become criminal. Yes. And in order to determine those things, you have to discuss them, right? right. And, it's and you... And a discussion requires a person speaking and another person listening. That's what we're not good at anymore. No. Well, especially, uh, you know, just people shouting over each other in presidential debates. and it's like... So for the three people listening to this <laughs> podcast, it's gone on ad infinitum uh, for probably too long. I apologize for being long. -winded. No, I... You're fine. Uh, we can I, wrap this up. I thank wanna... you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for coming on. You're if welcome. you're uh, if you're up for another discussion, I, I really did enjoy this. You're welcome back on anytime. Thank you. Of course. <laughs>